This week, I talked to Kate Stalter about cognitive biases and how they affect investment decisions. She's a journalist turned financial advisor, so we also chat about how media coverage can influence people's biases. Welcome to episode 151 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. I'm Roger Edwards, a marketing guy and keynote speaker from Edinburgh, helping you keep your marketing strategy simple and the BS at bay. Hey folks and welcome to the show. Thanks as always for downloading or streaming the Marketing and Finance podcast. I am grateful that you take the time to plug me and my guests into your earphones. As you've probably heard, my voice is a little bit croaky this week. I've just had a bout of cough and cold, otherwise known as man flu, so I'm going to keep this introduction quite short. I've just come back from London where I was attending the Humans Under Management Conference. Now, this event is run by well-known advisor Andy Hart, and it's the first time he's run this event. And it's a conference all about behavioural psychology and how it applies to financial services. So a great coincidence, therefore, that my guest this week, Kate Stalter, is also going to be talking about biases and cognitive biases and therefore behavioural psychology. We talk about Kate's career from journalist to financial advisor and more specifically financial educator, how news media across the globe affects investment decisions, the US perspective on active versus passive investments, avoiding cognitive biases when making financial planning decisions and home country bias and its effect on investment portfolios. Just a word of warning, Kate and I did face a few audio problems when we recorded this podcast. It mainly affects my side of the conversation. My voice is sometimes a little bit gravelly, not as a result of the man flow I've got this week, but it was actually Skype related. But her side of the conversation is crystal clear. I apologise, therefore, for my voice sounding a little Dalek-like at times. So let's get straight into that interview with Kate right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Kate Stalter, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Roger. So happy to be here. This is fun. It's great to have you on the show. And Kate, tell me, where are we Skyping each other from today? So I am in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's pretty exciting that we're talking on this particular day because many of your listeners may not be aware. Albuquerque hosts every year what's called the Balloon Fiesta. So it's hot air balloons, and it's one of the the preeminent balloon hot air balloon events, particularly in the United States. I really don't know about worldwide, but in the United States, it's one of the the premier events for that. And it's really beautiful. It's from my house. I can see all the hot air balloons rising in the morning. And it's, it's just a lot of fun. That sounds really interesting. Now, there's nothing like that happening in Edinburgh today, but uh, I, I, I was talking to a guy recently on the podcast who they held a balloon festival similar to that down in Bristol. So it does happen. It does happen. Yep. So, Kate, we've got lots of really interesting investment orientated topics that we can talk about today. And you've been involved with um, the financial services industry in the United States for quite a long time. You speak on the subject, you write on the subject, you advise on the subject. But I thought before we dive into anything specific, maybe you could give the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast a little bit about your background and where you came from and what your ambitions are and and basically what makes Kate Stalter tick. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting that it's marketing and finance because 
my career has really encompassed both of those areas. I became a financial advisor in a really different way. I've only met a couple of people that have come to this in the same way I did, but it's not very common. I was a financial journalist for many, many years. I worked at a place that is pretty well known in the U.S. called Investor's Business Daily. I write for Forbes, for U.S. News and World Report. I've hosted videos for a site called moneyshow.com, and Mm -hmm. I I actually still work with them a little bit. Um, I had a radio show here in the States called Small Cap Roundup, which, as the name implies, was focusing on, on small cap stocks. And after a while, Roger, it really, a couple of things happened. First of all, just as everybody I'm sure is well aware, the economy changed and it became more and more difficult to make a good living only as a journalist. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into the pros and cons of all of that. You could debate that topic all day long, I think. But it was OK, because for me, I wanted to do something a little different. I had been interested in getting licensed as an advisor for quite some time, and it took me a few years to get around to actually taking the exam and doing it, but a few years ago I did. You know, the other thing, too, is to be quite candid, obviously journalists play such an important role in our society, but I wanted to help people more directly kind of more hands-on working with clients, helping them with their specific problems. And it's a really different thing, Roger, because, again, as everybody is aware, journalism is becoming more and more sensationalistic yes. with clickbait headlines, right? It's, uh, you know, I see I see all those stories that, that come across my screen from, from the Telegraph, from the Daily Mail. So I'm familiar with what's going on over there in the UK as well. We get all that here. Um and and those are just two sites. And, and it really felt more like kind of slinging impersonal advice at people without any real awareness of their own individual situation. So as a former journalist, that really gives me a better sense of marketing. And that's the other piece of your podcast, Roger. I think people who most people who become financial advisors, a lot of them go into it because they enjoy the stock market. And I got to tell you, that is a terrible reason to become an advisor. (laughs) Yes, it really is, because that's not going to be your job. I think people uh, believe that their job as a financial advisor is going to be sitting around watching the market all day. And there certainly are jobs like that if you become, say, a trader or maybe work in the back office somewhere. There are those jobs. But that's not what most financial advisors do. And I think increasingly, as the financial industry becomes more complex worldwide, that the job of an advisor is really to manage client emotions, to solve very challenging problems. So I feel like I do have an advantage both understanding how to market a business that I want to grow along with my business partner. We definitely are a, uh, we're a woman-owned firm, and we believe there is a very special niche that we can address here. And the other thing is the job is not sitting around staring at the market all day. I think I really can't emphasize that enough. What I really like about what you said there, Kate, is one of the reasons you've moved on from being a journalist to being an advisor actually, to me, comes down to education. And I guess in the old days, I would always describe a journalist primarily as an educator. 
You know, okay, there may be the odd sensationalist story, but ultimately a journalist is there to educate people about things that are happening, whether it's a news story about a a war or a news story about something happening in a small town. They are there to educate people. But I think you're right, as the as the as the internet has become more clickbaity, I think that emphasis on education has been lost to a certain extent. And and it almost sounds as if you've you've felt that, you know, I need to get out of that environment because ultimately I am an educator. I want to help people to understand investments and to understand markets. And and I'm not really achieving that as a journalist anymore because that's not the way journalism works. And I want to actually get into a scenario where I can sit in front of people and teach them and educate Mm -hmm. them. And my subject is financial services. Yeah. And and one thing that just is an impediment to journalists really truly being able to educate and help people. It's just the fact that you can't know somebody's individual situation. I mean, some of the places I write for are highly responsible and do a lot of fact checking and definitely want to give out the best information. I mean, U.S. News and World Report, they are just very, very thorough. And I cannot say enough about the team of editors over there. But ultimately, it still comes down to the fact that one a stock for one person to buy or a decision on when to uh, take Social Security, which is a, I guess in, in the UK, you might call it a, a government pension program mm-hmm. uh, for seniors here in the US. We do have that. The decision on when to take that is highly personal, depends on one's circumstance, one's spouse's circumstance. And you can give advice in an article all day long, but ultimately, you know, you you can't help everybody with that. And so you stopped being a freelance writer and you Mm -hmm. set up a company. It's called Better Money Decisions. Is that right? That's right. That's what we call here in the States a registered investment advisor firm. And we are pure fiduciaries, which just means that we are legally obligated to act in our client's best interest at all times, that we do not receive commissions for Mm -hmm. buying and selling, say, mutual funds or, or any other type of security. And you know what that does is it aligns our interests with those of our clients. There's a commercial I see running here uh, in the U.S. right now from a very big firm. And the guy is on there saying, well, our interests are aligned with yours. When you do better, (laughs) we do better. That's a fiduciary. That's exactly what a fiduciary does. So Mm -hmm. he's kind of making it sound like he's got something fancy and special there. But that's that's what that's what the fiduciary rule is. Now, the law got a little muddy here in the U.S. last year when uh, it was required that advisors who manage retirement accounts, especially earmarked retirement accounts, that they be fiduciaries and not receive commissions. But see, the reason that kind of muddied the waters was because now they can be fiduciaries on retirement accounts, but still continue to be stockbrokers getting commissions on non-retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. So rather than adding, I I think it helped the consumer in some ways, but it also added some murkiness rather than adding 100% clarity. Obviously, there are so many things that people have to think about when they are 
putting together an investment portfolio. And we were talking before we hit record before about all the things that are happening in the world at the moment. You know, the stock market's very volatile. I think every time President Trump sends out a tweet these days, the markets get affected. In the United right. Kingdom, obviously, we've got this whole Brexit thing hanging over us, and that's causing the pound to be quite weak and for, and for markets to be nervous. And then people have got the questions in their head about, well, should I be investing in active? investments should i get somebody to manage the fund for me or or should i be passive should i go for a tracking fund so what what are the processes that you go through when you talk to your clients to try to make all of this stuff much more easy to understand and and help them along their way to 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 meet their financial goals yeah this is this is a huge question really and and it does kind of come back a little bit to what we were talking about a few minutes ago roger about sort of all this sensationalistic media mm-hmm. and articles out there. You know, we're getting towards the end of the year now. We're going to be seeing a lot of articles about great stocks to buy in yeah. 2018, right? <laughs> it's we'll be, like clockwork. We'll be seeing that. And it adds confusion. It makes people think that they're missing out on something if they don't grab this investment that, again, some writer somewhere, who, who knows what credentials that person has, that some writer somewhere decides are the best stocks to buy. You know, you mentioned, and I, I agree wholeheartedly, by the way, with everything you just said about, you know, you've got the president of the United States who's tweeting stuff that has the the potential to, to affect markets. Now, fortunately, markets have kind of gotten to the point where they're ignoring him a little bit. But nonetheless, we are in this bull market and I'm sure your listeners are aware if they're investors, U.S. stocks, large cap U.S. stocks have been rallying since 2009. Mm. That's a very long time. Now, there were a couple downturns. There was a downturn in the summer of 2011 that nobody remembers at this point. It was when Standard & Poor's, the rating, the ratings agency, actually downgraded U.S. debt. Mm-hmm. Nobody remembers that anymore because everything bounced back. And I think what's going on right now, Roger, is that 2008 is just fresh on everybody's mind. Yeah. Yeah. There was nowhere to hide. Worldwide stocks. I don't care. Essentially, essentially every stock went down in 2008. Now, you know, I'm sure here and there you could find some that rose, but broader markets, every international market was down in 2008. That is fresh on people's minds. So every time there's a momentary hiccup now, people start to panic and they think, oh my gosh, is it another 2008? Are we going to see a crash again? And, you know, the circumstances today are quite different. There's not necessarily something out there like a housing bubble or something of that nature. And what people forget is that market downturns are actually quite normal. Mm. You need little corrections. You need maybe a small bear market. It kind of gives it, it gives markets a chance to refresh, flush out some of the excess. And then what always happens, and it happened in, in March 2009, right? You saw the bargain hunters, the value seekers, come in, start to purchase stocks when they perceived that they were trading at attractive valuations, and they came in there. And that's that's what happens again and again. Now, the big problem in 2008 was that people panicked. Mm-hmm. They sold at lows. They locked in losses. 
And it was quite devastating because what happens when you lock in a loss like that? Well, you have to work extra hard to get back to even. And then that pushes people into doing some foolish things maybe they shouldn't do. Like we see a lot of people who were sold annuities, 2008, 2009. And, you know, I'm not going to say that's always a bad thing, but I think they were sold annuities under the premise of, well, you've got to protect yourself. And now what they have is a very expensive, very expensive wrapper around often actively managed mutual funds. Mm. You have to be very, very careful. The the stockbrokers, the commission salesmen really made hay in 2008. Those are the guys and gals who made out very well during that time because they preyed upon people's fear and their desire for security. So we see this to this day. We see people walking in with these annuities that, and they sometimes they say with a straight face because they don't know. They say, oh, well, I was, I, I was sold this to protect myself. It's like, well, you know, the, the, the markets went right back up. A, 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 a portfolio consisting of broadly diversified stocks and bonds is the way to protect yourself. And I think that gets into the second part of your question there about the need for a more passive investment strategy. And it kind of, you know, I approach that from from two angles, really. On the, on the more passive side, maybe index funds, uh, tr- which track an index, as you said, you know, that's a much more inexpensive way to get broad market exposure than to have some highly paid fund manager who's picking stocks because over time guess what they don't they don't keep up with the index maybe they do for a few years i mean the very very famous one in the u.s during the dot-com era was leg mason there was a large cap u.s stock fund that just did fabulously until it didn't yes no longer tracked the s&p 500 right um And sure, you have better skilled managers. I do believe that you do have people that are better at that. But over time, the market itself is going to be more skilled than almost any manager. And finally, just to kind of wrap this up for a second, it's it's really the case that nobody knows. Now, you alluded to Brexit a few minutes ago, and that was a major, major market event for a brief period of time. And then everything rallied right back. And, you know, that's going to take a couple of years to unwind, isn't it, Roger? Absolutely. And and again, we, we sort of started this conversation talking about the media and talking about mm-hmm. journalism. And, and I do think that the world we live in at the moment, you almost sometimes want to turn the news off. Yeah. Because what we read online, what we see on the television, often creates perceptions in our mind. And we, and we often become horribly biased by those perceptions and and sometimes i think we need people like yourself and the work that you're doing through better money decisions to almost become a a, a little bit immune and a little bit removed from all that sensationalism just so that we can start making properly informed decisions and i do worry that the world we live in at the moment creates an environment where you you can't make the right decisions because people are firing sensational headlines at you from every angle and and we almost need a little bit of a of a calm within that storm of information so that we can just 
get a grip of ourselves and say, okay, this is what I need to do. And for some people, it might be something nice and easy and passive, whereas somebody else, it, it, it might be a little bit more uh, risky. But ultimately, I mean, that, that's just financial planning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I just think that sometimes you've just got to say, hold on, let's just take a few breaths here and slow down and make some well-informed decisions. Well, you know, it's interesting because an example I use with people is back in 2008 when Barack Obama took office as president of the United States. He actually was elected in 2008 and took office in January 2009. A lot of people who were on the more conservative side were very worried that he was going to – and I'm not making a political statement here. I'm really actually doing the opposite, yeah. kind, of, kind of just taking the 30,000-foot view. A lot of people felt like he was going to damage the economy, damage the markets. Well, you know what? The markets did spectacularly well during the Obama years. Mm. They were just very, very good years in the U.S. stock markets. And then again, in 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, And again, not a political statement, but a lot of people from the other side of the aisle felt like, oh, my goodness, the markets are going to crash. He's going to do terrible things. They bailed out. And I talk to people now who regret bailing out in November of 2016 because the markets have continued to go higher since then. You know, and I'm sure the same thing goes on in the UK. I mean, I follow the news about uh, your prime minister and maybe what's going on with her. I'm sure there's people that are over there doing the very same thing. Like, well, I don't know if I like her policies. (laughs) I do like her policies. And I think this goes on everywhere in the developed world that people read the news. They get emotional about it. And that's one of the biggest things as an advisor that is our job is to help people deal with their emotions around these things. Because, you know what, markets go up and down. Mm-hmm. It may have something to do with a politician, but you, you know what, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. And I think that's what these examples have shown, that just because there's something in the news and everybody gets nervous and feels like that is going to, uh, usually it's, it's decreased markets at this point. People are less elated these days than they are fearful but you know what? You just don't know. The things that you feel like are sure to crash the market, no, not ne- not necessarily so. Markets do decline, but you don't know what causes it. Yeah, we do all have our biases. And again, I think as well, you you tend to be shaped by what you know as well, don't you? So I think it's a phenomenon that obviously if you live in the United Kingdom, you're going to be attracted to UK best based investments. If you live in the States, you're going to be attracted to US based investments, mm-hmm. but it goes even deeper than that. So I don't know if I'm an airline employee and I've got some money to invest, I'm probably likely to be attracted by aviation based industries and airlines or if i'm working in motor manufacturing i might be and 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 on it goes people are attracted by things that they know and that's not necessarily a good thing because it doesn't give you a balanced portfolio it biases your investment decisions and again i think that what you're doing as a financial advisor is to try to stop people from being so biased and so focused and give them a more broad view Mm-hmm. I am so glad you brought this up. Yeah. This idea of home country bias, mm-hmm. which is what it's called, it is true throughout the developed world. So you're absolutely right. Vanguard, uh, which I'm sure your lis- your listeners may be familiar with, Vanguard has done research into this. They found that in, I think, the 
think the countries they looked at, I know they looked at the U.S. and I think Canada, Australia, the U.K., and I believe Germany. And they looked at all these countries and they found out that people tend to be over allocated into their home country stocks. Now, I get that because I'm sure, you know, when you're driving down the road in the U.K., you see different businesses than we see here. You see different gas stations. What do you call them there? Petrol stations? Petrol stations, like, yes. Yeah, okay, <laughs> right. You see, you see for, uh, for the most part, different brands that we see here, although I think some of them are probably the same at this, at this point. Uh, you know, you see different grocery stores. You, 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 see, you see some different things than we see here. And the biggest companies in the UK, those are very, very familiar. The same way if you're in the US, the big companies in the US are most familiar here. And that's what people buy. Now, I do get it that everywhere in the world, you know, I'm using an Apple computer right now. I get that. That's everywhere. And there are some brands that are just absolutely ubiquitous worldwide. That's true. But still, we do tend to go with what's familiar. It goes even deeper than that. And this is what you were alluding to with maybe the airline employee or the auto industry employee. So on the West Coast of the U.S., California, where Silicon Valley, where all the tech companies are, investors in California tend to be overallocated into tech stocks. Yeah. Whereas an investor in somewhere like Texas, and, and just for the listeners who may not know, that's where a lot of the oil and gas industry is in Texas in the U.S., those folks tend to be more heavily into oil and gas. And again, so it's even in the micro regions of what people know that they tend to invest in. And I get it that that people are sort of, you're you're blinded by the familiar, but fortunately, fortunately, we live in a day and age where it's so easy now to own investments from worldwide. I mean, you can buy a mutual fund, you can buy an exchange traded fund and you have access to, you know, a small cap stock in Indonesia <laughs> that, you know, like our, our fathers and grandfathers were not able to buy that kind of thing. So we're actually very fortunate that we can do this these days. You still have to convince people that it's a good thing. I'm just trying to think of the example you gave there. Now, a UK investor might be quite comfortable being told that Tesco, which is a big supermarket chain, is a good investment. But if they were then told, but you might want to consider Walmart, which is the US equivalent, I guess, they may say, well, I know who Tesco are, but I don't really know much about Walmart. So I'll stick with Tesco because it's homegrown and it's what I know. And this kind of this gets to our philosophy of don't try to be betting on single stocks. Hmm. Because our, I can tell you this, our clients own Tesco. Yeah. I can, I can absolutely assure you that they do, but not because we went out and did the research. And of course, you know, the research is available to everybody. Uh, a UK investor can go out and do the research on Walmart. Absolutely. It's, it's there. Uh, but does that mean just because you look up the earnings online and you do some reading about it, does that mean it's right for you? as a single stock. The problem with doing that, the problem with going out and saying I'm going to own Tesco or Walmart or Apple or any any stock at all, it doesn't matter, is that you're adding too much risk to yeah. your portfolio. Yeah. So, you know, not not to not to pick on any one of these, I'm really not, but just, you know, say Tesco's sales decline sharply or there's some event there and somebody has holds too much of that, that's going to hurt them. Mm. But say you own a basket of just the big UK companies. 
Well, you know, there there might be uh, an economic downturn in the UK that might cause the whole basket of stocks to decline. But still, you're mitigating your risk much more so than if you try to go out and pick a single stock. I mean, that that's that's just very, very dangerous. And frankly, in this day and age, there's no reason to do that anymore. No. And it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the difference between active and passive. Well, there's a couple problems with the active management. The first is that it's often very expensive. So we like to use funds that have an internal expense ratio of it averages about 0.25. So in other words, uh, 25 basis points, very, very inexpensive. Now, a lot of the active funds are above 1%. So you see right away, like maybe four times the amount that you really need to pay. So that's one thing. And sometimes we get the question of, well, if you pay more, are you going to get better performance? Yeah. I love that question because I'm kind of like, think about it. If if you're paying a guy or gal, you're paying somebody more with the faith that that person knows how to pick the very best stocks for you at all times and that person will beat the market. Think about that. How can that how can that even be? Wouldn't that be the only fund anybody would ever buy in that case? Uh, It just doesn't make any sense. But it's a question that we get a lot is, is if I pay more, do I get better performance? Unfortunately, markets don't work that way. And that's kind of the second part of the answer here is nobody has a secret sauce for picking the best investments. You know, decades ago, when information was more scarce, when people had to order the prospectus from fund companies and really take the time. I mean, there were a lot of guys. I worked for a a gentleman named Bill O'Neill at a company called Investors Business Daily. Bill, he's in his 80s now, but back in the 1960s and 70s, he got his start by doing exactly that. He would order the prospectus from mutual fund companies. He He would notice the stocks they were purchasing. He would actually make his own stock price charts plot them out and see like what the trading volume was, how, what kind of price momentum they had. I mean, it was just a lot of work. Now for a while, he started a newspaper in 1983 to kind of share that methodology. And again, you know, in the eighties and nineties, that sort of thing was not well known today. We all have the same information. There's no secret sauce. Even the regulations have changed to be sure we all have the same information. You know, back in the day, the, uh, the big corporate earnings calls, like when a publicly traded company would announce its quarterly earnings, it was available to maybe investment banking analysts and, you know, very, very small number of financial industry professionals. Today, it's open to everybody. Everybody. Now, probably not many individual investors really want to get on those calls, but it's open to you if you want to. There's so much transparency. It's just a different world today. So this idea that somebody has some secret formula, some secret sauce. No, they they just don't. We all have the same information. And I usually ask my guests, usually at this point in the podcast, what's the one thing that you'd like the listeners of the show to take away from all the experience that you've had. But I think that could be it. <laughs> mm, it. It really is. Turn away when when you see somebody kind of 
recommending particular stocks when because because first of all a lot of times these people recommending stocks they're just an editor at some financial publication they've never managed a nickel of anybody's money in their life keep that in mind uh you, you know the and the other thing is too we all we all have the same information these days no secret sauce Fantastic. Kate, one of the questions I also ask my guests, and this is thinking a bit wider now and looking beyond the industry you work in, because this is a marketing and finance podcast. Have you come across a marketing campaign or it could be a product recently that's really made you sit up and think, wow, I love what they're doing. Tell me what it was and what you liked about it. You know, I follow a lot of people online who are doing online marketing, and that's really the way that I look at things right now. I joined a program by uh, a guy named Jason Stapleton, and he does a podcast here in the U.S. on uh, it's kind of a political show. But Jason also was starting out as a as a Forex trader trading mm-hmm. uh, foreign exchange currencies and he's been quite successful and I just admire what he's done as a businessman and I do know that he does have clients in his program that are international so I would just look him up Jason Stapleton he's kind of become he's created some celebrity for himself online celebrity but he also does a lot of public speaking and he's done that in a very very short time so i'm kind of enamored of what what he's doing over there with his his training program right now so i would i would suggest that to people at this point and let me tell you too just from building my own business if if people are interested in some things that have worked for me because we've grown our company pretty fast also in a short time I do writing for a local newspaper. Do not disregard that, particularly if you have a service business that's in a community, whether it's maybe in Edinburgh or anywhere else. It doesn't matter. If you have a service business where you're working with local clients, think about your local media that maybe you could you could write something there. We also do public speaking. And, you know, it's so unglamorous what we do, but it works. We we get a room at the public library and we do a free seminar about investing. So it doesn't have to be glamorous. You know, it has to be professional. You have to have some polish, but it doesn't have to be this big national glamorous thing that you spend a lot of money on. Has there been a business book that you've read recently, again, that's made you sit up and think, yep, really like the sound of what this guy is talking about? Yeah, I'm actually, this is funny. I did a podcast interview recently with a gentleman named Kerry Lutz, Mm -hmm. L-U-T-Z is his last name, and he does a, a financial show in the U.S. and he let me know about a book that he had written, and now I'm blanking on the title of it. But if you look it up on on the Kindle store, it's Carrie Lutz, K-E-R-R-Y-L-U-T-Z, and it really talks all about how he launched his podcast, how he turned it into a very successful business venture. I mean, he's a former attorney. I think solicitor would be the word, right? Is that (laughs) lawyer, attorney? He, uh, and and he wanted to get out of that business and become a radio broadcaster. Okay. And he really learned how to do it. And he now has a podcast and it's on the topic of finance and he's written a Kindle book about it and really details his path. And he gives a lot of great advice. So that's one I would recommend at this time. Fantastic. And Kate, if people want to get in touch with you to have a chat about what you do, what's the best way that they should connect with you? Sure. I'm on Twitter at Kate Stalter, or you can email me, kate at bettermoneydecisions.com. 
Fantastic. And I will include links to those contact details in the show notes for the podcast. I'll also put a link to the book that you recommended in the um, show notes. And you can find that at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. Kate, it's been amazing talking to you this afternoon. Really enjoyed getting your US perspective on investments and the difference between active and passive and the biases that we face in the digital world that we live in at the moment. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. Let me wish you every success for the future. I usually say to my guests, it'd be great to meet up with you in person at some point, but I guess that given there's a, probably about 4,000 miles between us, that's going to be a little less likely, but you never know. Never know. That's right. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Roger. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed. Until next time, keep marketing your business to keep growing your business.